Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Hey, this is Beyond Black History Month, and I'm your host, Femi Redwood. One of my favorite things about being a journalist is that every day I learn something new. It's like college, but without the crippling student debt. Anyway, while talking to a guest in a different episode, he described how the lives of black families changed when they left the South during the Great Migration to head up north for factory jobs. That took me down a rabbit hole of how the labor movement helped create a black middle class. But since then, unionization declined. However, it is coming back. This was an historic vote and a sign of the rising power and popularity of labor and unions in the American workforce. BuzzFeed, Amazon, Starbucks, you've heard the news stories. This year, there's been a 56% increase in petitions asking for union representation nationwide. This could be life-changing for black families in the way it was in the past. Research shows black union members have better health insurance, a heftier retirement fund, and higher pay when compared to black folks who are not in a union. In fact, one study found there's a pay difference of 36%. So after a summer of company after company unionizing, I had to know, what role did black workers play throughout the history of organizing? And where do they fit today? But first, why is this modern-day labor movement even taking off? Rebecca Given, a labor professor at Rutgers University, says it's been brewing. I think workers have really had their eyes opened over the course of the pandemic. She says frontline workers felt like their bosses didn't care about their health or their families. They also saw their companies making a lot of money in the same time period and the inequity and the unfairness really, really came home. And I think that combined with the very tight labor market and the fact that workers are in a strong position to demand more now because it really is possible to go get another job. I think all of that came together and made workers sort of ready, willing, and able to fight back. This comes as union membership is at a historic low. It's been declining for decades. About 6% of private sector employees are unionized and 34% of public employees. After the 1950s, the legal environment became less and less favorable to workers who wanted to organize. And starting in the late 70s, employers started to deploy more and more uh, aggressive tactics to essentially bust any union organizing. As unions decreased, 
so did the incomes of the middle class. The Economic Policy Institute found there was less income inequality during the heyday of unions. An estimated $50 trillion has been redistributed to the top 10% from the bottom 90% in the past few decades. But workers have said enough is enough. Employees today are re-examining the demands of their jobs, like Reese Mercado. They're a black barista at a Starbucks in Brooklyn. You know how Rebecca said the pandemic was a driving force for change? That was the case for Reese. When Starbucks closed indoor dining, customers were required to wear masks. However... A lot of issues with people not wearing masks and my coworkers being the ones vocal about it, like telling people coming in that, you know, you have to wear a mask. And, and when it got belligerent or anything, it was kind of up to us to just, you know, write an incident report and just move on with a day instead of having any proper protections or having any proper acknowledgement of, of what's a really big health and safety issue for us. At the same time, there was a nationwide effort to unionize Starbucks cafes. Reese and their co-workers noticed, but it was one incident that pushed the Brooklyn location into joining the movement. Two customers got kind of violent with an off-duty, like a barista who came in to visit who wasn't working that day. They got violent. And they called him the N-word. And, you know, he defended himself. They got into a physical fight. When police arrived, the worker was arrested, not the customer who Reese says used hate speech and refused to wear a mask. Reese says when the incident was reported to Starbucks... Starbucks was not cooperative. Before we go on, Jill Webb, who produced this episode, reached out to Starbucks to get its side of the story. Jill did not hear back. We gave Starbucks weeks to respond. There were some back and forth emails, but no response. Anyway, Reese says this wasn't the first time a customer got physical. Customers would threaten to beat the out of us, threaten to punch our face in, and we're a store with where everyone's pretty like small and I don't know, non-threatening looking. Like we're all just, you know, behind the bar making drinks. Reese says employees were tired of seeing these types of things go unchecked. Basically, we're told to write these incident reports and they're fruitless. Nothing comes of them. No one even calls to check on you. And that incident kind of pushed us all to be like, well, we got to unite and we got to say, we have to close the cafe if they're not going to protect us. So in May of this year, the union vote of that location unanimously passed. Unresolved safety issues have historically been one of the main driving forces behind the creation of unions. But for black workers, there's an added layer to harassment, racism, from customers and coworkers. Depending on the length of time black workers are employed at a company, data finds between 24 and 43 percent of black workers experience racism on the job. Reese says they've seen how black workers are treated differently, things like being policed on the way they speak or dress. Reese says when workers bring this up to management, those workers having their hours cut for speaking out. This isn't new, which is why the labor movement have always been involved in the fight for civil rights. Look at the March on Washington. 
you know, we say the March on Washington, but we don't say the full name of it, which is the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. That's Dr. James Benton, a labor historian and the director of Georgetown University's Race and Economic Empowerment Project. He says 1963's March on Washington is a prominent example of tying labor and civil rights together. The march was initially proposed by A. Philip Randolph. He organized and led the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. That's the first black union to be granted a charter by the American Federation of Labor. In 1941, Randolph called for a march to get black workers access to defense plant jobs during World War II. African Americans were being shut out, and so he threatened 100,000 African Americans would march on Washington to demand some kind of equal access to these plants. And in return, Franklin Roosevelt said, no, we're going to we're going to issue an executive order. We're going to outlaw discrimination in those defense plants. Roosevelt did this by creating the Fair Employment Practice Committee to tackle racial discrimination against workers. And in return, Randolph calls off the march. But the agency was short lived. It closed by the mid 40s due to budget cuts. As attacks on black Americans continued, leaders took more direct action. Randolph merged his proposed March for Jobs with Martin Luther King Jr.'s planned March for Freedom. And on August 28, 1963, 250,000 people at the Lincoln Memorial. The picket signs that you see in virtually every photograph of the March on Washington, where it says UAW says no U.S. dough to help Jim Crow grow or things like that. That march where MLK Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech was a defining moment for civil rights. But solidarity among workers of different races hasn't always been embraced. This should come as no surprise that black workers were exploited after slavery. When emancipation came, there were efforts even then in the years right after the Civil War to form some kind of organized labor unions. They wanted better conditions, greater pay, and a voice on the job. When I talk about the National Labor Union in the 1870s, there were a small number of white and African-American laborers who knew they had to come together to fight for better conditions. Like in New Orleans. Where workers of both races joined together and formed a very powerful union in the late 1800s that was able to influence not just labor, but also the city's political structure. So that Black-white unity has been there It's also evident in the early years of the Great Depression in places like Chicago, where workers began to, again, see the need to unify as workers and not necessarily as white ethnic workers, as African-American workers, but they had to unite if they want to achieve a common goal. But racism got in the way of working class solidarity. By the turn of the century, with the degree of immigration that that had come in specifically from Eastern and Southern Europe, African-Americans began to be used more as strike breakers or a, a force for breaking up workforces, particularly in coal mines and steel mills and things like that. Prejudice prevented unions from forming or growing. There were actually efforts by some people to say, no, you don't want to be in unions because there was a resistance to African-Americans joining unions. But beginning in the early decades of the 20th century, like around the 1920s or so and moving forward, 
you began to see more African-American participation in formal labor unions. They used their labor as a bargaining chip for a better workplace, which brings a better life than after World War II. You begin to see unions taking a more expansive role of what, not just what life in the United States should be like, but how those American ideals should be implemented throughout the rest of the world. Obviously, racism still hindered efforts, but labor leaders were beginning to take a stand against it. And so you have unions like the UAW that actively are fighting discrimination and segregation to the fact where to the point where they begin to upset their southern members because the union is raising money and giving it to the NAACP. And in return, Walter Ruther basically said, I I'm going to mangle the phrase here, but he insinuated that he would be glad to have 100,000 fewer members of the UAW if all those members were working toward some kind of greater democracy for all. Walter Ruther was the president of the UAW from 1946 to 1970. He basically told white Southern Union members who were racist they could leave the union because civil rights aligned with workers' rights. But that solidarity, well... And then it kind of falls apart after 65. There are signs of greater interracial unity, but there are also these signs of dissent, dissension, these incidents that test alliances and lead the movement in different directions. Like a labor dispute in Brownsville, Brooklyn in the late 60s. The schools there were under a community control experiment. And the residents of the neighborhood, mostly Black and Puerto Rican, were disgruntled with the conditions that they were facing, that their kids were facing in schools, particularly with their teachers. And so they began to get into personnel issues, which angered the United Federation of Teachers, which had a largely white and Jewish membership. And so there began to be a little bit of friction between the community groups and the UFT and the resulting dispute kind of thawed, definitely thawed black, froze black and Jewish relations for the time being, but also set in motion a move to the right by many white ethnics in New York City over the intervening decades from the 1960s on. At the same time, automation. At the very moment where these jobs are being opened up, there are fewer jobs to go around. And so there's a struggle to make gains. The doors are finally being opened, but to jobs that may be tenuous, may no longer exist. Black workers were facing conflicts with their unions. I mentioned the UAW in terms of civil rights, but they were also having a very difficult struggle getting African-Americans from the rank and file of the membership into the executive council, into positions of leadership. And that is a theme that you see often across much of the labor movement, especially at this time, where the leadership does not look representative of the membership that it serves. That resulted in a push for workers to have a greater voice within their unions, but at the same time, it didn't result in significant inner union change. It also leaves some bitter feelings and friction that don't really help the union movement because 
despite the growth in public sector unionism, the labor density, the number of Americans in the workforce who belong to a union, it is on a continued decline. It reached its peak in the mid-1950s, roughly around one in three workers then. And now it's down to about maybe one in 10 U.S. workers belong to a union. All the things that we've talked about have taken place against this backdrop of, of decline in uh, union participation. Today's labor movement has something unique. Young, college-educated workers who belong to two frustrated generations. Many went to school for a different job, but ended up doing frontline work during the 2008 recession or the pandemic. And many of those degrees are helping. Workers know what's allowed under labor law. They can easily spot illegal practices. Here's Rebecca again. They're facing a very typical anti-union campaign, but it's not working. They've really been able to make those what have become almost cliched anti-union talking points ineffective and stick to their guns and vote yes anyway. Their tech savviness is also helping. I think a lot of it is sort of, we could say, almost good old-fashioned organization but person to person talking to each other, building trust, building relationships, sharing what they had in common. We're seeing use of things like WhatsApp and Zoom for workers to share their experiences, both the degradation of their work and then also the anti-union talking points that they're likely to face and how to rebut them and how to respond to them. Unions today are also fighting to ensure workers' sexuality, gender, and pronouns are respected. Once again, embracing diversity is helping unions grow. They've come of age at a time that was really different where they didn't just sort of stand idly by in the face of injustice. They stood up for each other and often it's standing up for each other, not themselves. And so I think their politicization and their self-identity in the world translates into the workplace. They don't see that they should just accept the status quo if the status quo is unfair. The workers who are organizing today have been in the last 15 years through the Great Recession, a slow economic recovery, the realization that a black president didn't change as much as people thought, the rise of Donald Trump, and then a pandemic, all against the backdrop of an ongoing war in Iraq and Afghanistan following 9-11. The decade between 2000 and 2010 was the first decade since World War II where the average household income went down. Housing costs are up. Student loans are a burden. Wages have not kept up with inflation, though productivity has outstripped all all of its, you know, workers are more productive, but they're getting paid less. And then you have the rise of the gig economy where, you know, you drive for Uber, you drive for Lyft, you deliver for DoorDash and so forth. And there are all these things that have chipped away at workers' rights on the job under the guise of flexibility, schedules that are adjusted at the last minute so that workers are unable to make plans for their lives. Workers being forced to come in and close a store, take a couple hours off, come back and then open a store. Workers being subjected to wage theft, misclassification, ill treatment by managers, by customers and so forth. So this current moment that we're in, all of those things, plus George Floyd, plus the, the rise of Black Lives Matter movement, the response to police brutality, the response to economic inequality, 
all of those factor in. In fact, some of the most prominent labor movements of the 2000s have been heavily influenced by community needs. Organizations like Fight for 15, which which are pushing for a $15 minimum wage in the fast food industry and union rights. We see labor discussions becoming a space for conversations around wide-ranging social issues. You begin to see these teachers negotiations become larger forums for things like affordable housing issues delivering social workers and mental health resources to schools you begin to see the teachers unions not only bargaining for their own wages but bargaining for things that they know will help the community as a whole that is a strategy that african american workers as part of this group of public sector union workers are undertaking to help a broader societal goal. The April win at Amazon Staten Island warehouse was especially remarkable. We want to thank Jeff Bezos for going to space because when he was up there, we decided to keep it up. It was a first for Amazon and led by Amazon Labor Union President Chris Moss. That was him in the soundbite. We interviewed him last year in our in-depth podcast. If I could change the system I think that it'll benefit all workers. Chris's win is seen as an underdog victory. There's a reason his story has been compared to David and Goliath. It's especially difficult to organize in a very large workplace where thousands of workers are eligible to vote on whether or not they want to be represented by a union. It takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of resources, and the employer has almost unlimited resources to try to intimidate workers and persuade them to vote no or to put enough fear and uncertainty in their minds. Chris has become the face of the modern labor movement. But despite his success as a leader, he's gotten a lot of criticism over the way he dresses and talks. Chris is black, he's a former rapper, and he dresses in a way that embraces young black culture. He's led rallies in fitted caps and gold chains. He stands at the press podium in a do-rag. He attended a Senate budget committee hearing in a bomber jacket that read Eat the Rich. When he puts something on social media and invariably someone comes off someone comes out with the respectability politics, "Oh, you shouldn't dress like that." Those criticizing his wardrobe usually aren't his audience. He's looking to connect with the people like him he's looking to connect with the workers that have nothing to lose at this point because they have been trampled on so many times in so many different ways and i think to a person like that they can look at him and say hey you know i know people who dress like that maybe i dress like that and look at what he's doing and if he can do this how come why can't i do it chris is changing what it means to present as a leader i think in a in an unconventional sort of way what he's doing works because it makes people realize that a union leader doesn't necessarily look like you know someone in a, a suit and tie or someone in a dress or a skirt or someone with very conservative look or even a demeanor that's very moderate. His resistance to conform actually hits on a major workplace issue, code switching. I feel like black people are are kind of forced into code switching, especially when they're at work, when they're in the labor force and, you know, organizing it's the same thing. But to many, Chris and leaders like him are more authentic because they don't code switch. We need more of that. Discrimination kind of doesn't stop even in the more socially aware spaces just because that's something that 
is pressured for a lot of people. They feel that pressure to change the way they speak or change the way they dress just to make people listen to them. And Chris Smalls is making people listen to him without doing any of that. The labor movement needs broader inclusion and it needs people like this. And if getting people like that is helpful to get more people organized, to get more contracts, to improve conditions within a plant, outside a plant, in a greater community, so be it. Who cares what he wears? <laughs> Reese, who remains a member of Starbucks Workers United, says the vibe at work has gotten better since the location unionized, but there's still more to do. There are people going to be here and they need better conditions. They need better pay. They need, like, this is a livelihood for a lot of people and it's a livelihood for me right now. Why wouldn't I want better for you know, people who come after me. Reese says more still needs to be done to prevent discrimination against workers from customers and higher ups. But despite the need for better, Reese says there's been a change. They say something about seeing the world turned upside down gave people the courage to speak out, leaving labor leaders excited for the future. But I'm hopeful that this this is a, a turning point. It's given a lot of people more courage to say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna make the changes. As the battle for better working conditions continue, many hope those improvements will better society in a broader sense. And the more people who take these examples to heart and put them to work in their own places, you may see much better results across the board. These rights that people fight for are not just something you fight for one time and you secure and they're yours forever. These are rights that you have to be vigilant to secure and protect and maintain. And as as we all know far too well from recent events, a right that's won can be taken away, can be chipped away, can be lost. And as the move towards unionization gains more traction, here's what we're told to keep in mind. I think the important lesson is that what people are fighting for today, there's a long history of it, and people should see themselves as participants in a long chain of individuals and organizations who have fought to secure and maintain and improve those rights and and improve those conditions and and take heart because you might lose but if you don't participate you're bound to lose one last thing i want to reiterate again that we gave starbucks two weeks to respond and we never heard back this comes as 19 starbucks locations have recently closed or are closing eight of which had unionized filed to unionize or were in the organizing process Union members say these closures are in retaliation for organizing efforts. But according to published reports, Starbucks has denied this. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond Black History Month. If you are enjoying our series, please rate and review our show. This helps us in the podcast rankings. Also, tell your friends to listen. 
Beyond Black History Month is a special production of 1010 Wins and WCBS News Radio 880. Special thanks to producer Jill Webb, who wrote and produced this episode. Big thanks to producers Dempsey Pillot and audio engineer Andy Egan Thorpe. Tim Schaud is the WCBS News Radio 880 brand manager. Ben Meverack is the 1010 Wins brand manager. And I'm your host and managing producer of podcasts, Famey Redwood. Thanks for listening. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 